And to all you moms out there, happy Mother's Day. Thank you. You're welcome. I have to confess something. I made a mistake planning for today. I had thought that I would just continue our series studying through Matthew. And only a couple weeks ago did I look at the calendar and realize, oh no, today is Mother's Day and we're scheduled to have me preach on divorce which just didn't seem right to me. So my gift to you mothers is that I'm gonna preach on a different topic today. Instead, we're gonna talk about God's good design for women. So please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. The word complementarianism is a big word. It does not appear in your Bible, but people use it to summarize a biblical concept. It's like the word Trinity. The Bible never uses the word Trinity, but it undeniably points to a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, tri-unity, Trinity. And the word complementarian is like that. Complementarianism refers to the historic conviction that God made men and women in his image, giving them equal value and dignity in his sight, while also appointing for them differing and complementary roles in the church and home. So we are unashamedly complementarian here. But, what kind of complementarians are we? The good kind or the bad kind? <laughs> the good kind, I hope so. Are we, as some put it, thick complementarians or thin complementarians? I might say, are we regular or are we decaf? You might say, are we premium or unleaded? This is something of an issue in evangelicalism that's being uh, worked out today. Thin complementarians are concerned with giving people the correct conclusions. So for them, a complementarian is someone who, who basically boils down to this. Men should be, is the conclusions, men should be pastors and men should be leaders in the home. For thin complementarians, they have a narrow view on complementarianism. That men and women are basically the same, except for in a couple of different ways. I really like how Kevin DeYoung articulates this. He has a, a new book, uh, Men and Women in the Church. It's an excellent book. And he talks about it like this. He says, it's like people imagine God has a list of 100 things men can do and a list of 98 things women can do. And that's thin complementarianism. It basically boils down to a couple of convictions about what women cannot do. Against that, and what I'm in part promoting today, is a thick complementarianism that says, listen, there are all kinds of things women cannot do as well as men, and underscore for today, a whole host of things that men can't do as well as women. Can I get an amen? amen. 
I'm gonna work with you second service, by the way, on this whole like amen and interaction thing, because you're much quieter than first service, which is amazing, because you have all these kids, so maybe they're distracting you, but anyway, I, I got cues for you here today, okay? So I'm gonna help you with this. Anyway, back to what's going on today. I am casting a vision today for thick complementarianism a caffeinated complementarianism. We're not just holding on to a couple of capricious no-nos. We're not just holding on to a couple of outdated rules stuck in our leave it to beaver, Ward and June Cleaver mentality. No, we want to be faithful to God's whole design for men and women from the beginning, that he made us a two-gendered humanity, and that that's good. And even though sin distorts it and damages it, they still remain a part of the beauty of God's created order. So today we're going back to Genesis to study God's original gender design. And and I want you to understand, one of my goals for today is to help you understand that that Genesis lays kind of the substructure to all our complementarian convictions. And once we understand what God says here, the design he lays out, the pattern he sets here, that makes everything else that's said in scripture about gender, that makes everything else make a lot more sense because it's all built on this. So we're seeing the substructure that's laid here for our convictions, and because it's Mother's Day, I'm gonna do this with a special focus on you women. So coming into Genesis, if you think about it, as we approach the book of Genesis, it's pretty amazing that we are only given two chapters that tell us the creation of everything. Only two chapters to answer all our questions about God creating everything, which means there's a whole lot we're not told, right? Like really important things. Like, why did God make mosquitoes? That's a really, does that not rise to top of the list of your questions? For, it's a question I have, like what good do they serve? What is the point of a mosquito? Okay, side, that's a side well, I won't go down. There are a lot in Genesis one and two we're not told about why God created or what, how he created or what, but there is one thing that we're told a whole lot about, and that's God's original design for men and women. So two points today. Not three, because there are two genders, and so we have two points. See how I did that for you? Yeah, help me drive home the points. Two genders, two points, two points on God's good design for for women specifically. We'll hit men through this too, but women specifically. How they are the same as men, and how they are different than men. So point number one, how women are the same as men. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis 1 tells us how God created the universe, and then in six days, he filled it. He filled it with all kinds of beautiful and wonderful things, and on the sixth day, he filled it with the crown of his creation, humanity. And so we begin reading about the creation of man in Genesis 1, verses 26, and we'll read through verse 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and, our, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, 
Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, so I want you to see here, notice first, Genesis 1, 27, verse 27 tells us a part of God's original design was he made both men and women in his image. Male and female, he made them. This is what he says in verse 31 is very good. And this has profound implications on our view of men or women. Right from the outset, we see that women are no lesser a creature than man. She is not inferior in any way. Can I get an amen? Amen. From the very beginning, women had equal access to God and equal value before God. And then notice in verse 28, after he makes them male and female, did you notice the switch to the plural all of a sudden? God gives both of them the creation mandate. Together, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, having dominion over it. So God gives them his image, and he gives them this mandate. Now, sidebar here for a minute on this creation mandate, okay? One appropriate for Mother's Day, I think. I don't know if you've seen in the news recently that there has been um, a new report that came out that talked about how the birth rate in America has dropped to a historic low. The lowest it's ever been in, in in our recorded history. And this means that there are more people dying in the U.S. than there are being born in the U.S. And so I just want to take this opportunity to say to you, Covenant of Grace Church, when we're talking about multiplying and filling the earth, Great job. <laughs> You're doing it. Good work. Way to be countercultural. I'm so proud of you. And I want to encourage you if you need it, don't grow weary in doing good. <laughs> Maybe there's another one for you. <laughs> you didn't laugh at that one. You're like, <laughs> no. Uh. Listen, here's how I see it. It's not bad if Christians are the only ones replacing themselves and adding to the population. Amen. You follow me? And if, 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 <laughs> listen, here's the thing. You, you care about evangelism? You want to provoke people to ask you about the reason for the hope that you have within? Drag your litter of children through Lowe's or Walmart. <laughs> And when, like me, you got six of them, people being like, oh my goodness, what's your problem? (laughs) Well, let me tell you, children are a blessing from the Lord. And I want to bless the world by bringing blessings into it. So, good job, don't grow weary. I love children. End of sidebar, back to the main point, women being the same as men. That both men and women are made in the image of God has massive implications for understanding their shared value before God. And yet this was a huge part of God's design that was damaged in the fall when man sinned. Through most of history, tragically, men have treated women as inferior, as a second-class sex, which is why so many cultures haven't allowed women equal rights, haven't allowed women to own property, to go to school, to work outside the home, to earn equal pay. All of this is evidence of profound gender distortion 
and damage. Gender issues is not a new thing. We've been struggling with gender issues since the fall. It's just showing itself in different ways today. Through most of church history and most of around the world still today in most cultures, women have been treated as inferior to men and that is a sin against God's good and original design and it's a part of what Jesus came to remake and make new. Right, so you see, out of a culture that minimized the dignity of women and even depersonalized making them property, Jesus came forward and boldly affirmed the worth of a woman and gladly benefited from women's ministry. This is just worth reviewing in a little depth here. Jesus had the unusual practice for his day of speaking freely and speaking publicly with women. And this in a time when women were not educated, Jesus made a point to teach women on numerous occasions and to welcome them as disciples and followers of his. Jesus also ministered personally to the needs of hurting women, such as Peter's mother-in-law and the woman who was bent over for 18 years and the woman who had suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years and the woman with a mother with a demon-possessed daughter and the mother who had lost her son. These are just a few examples of some of the more touching ministerial moments in Jesus's ministry. They're with women. And then going even further than that, Jesus also welcomed the ministry of women. Right, so several times he was anointed with oil by women. Women helped finance his ministry. They opened their homes to him and his disciples. And most significantly of all, women were given the honor of being the first witnesses to his resurrection. And that may not sound like a big deal to some of us, but back in that day, women weren't allowed to be witnesses in a court case because they were not valued enough in society to have that word. And so that Jesus said, no, I'm gonna have women be the first to witness my resurrection was a tremendous blessing and honor. It all hung first on them and their word. So you see, underlying Jesus' whole ministry was a radical assumption against the culture that women have enormous value and purpose. He honored them, he received them, he included them in his ministry in meaningful ways, and he saved them in just the same way he saved men, by loving them enough to give his life for them, dying for their sins and raising with forgiveness in his wings. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians 3.28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this passage, some use this passage to try and prove that Jesus obliterated all gender differences, right? That there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's no slave or free, and there's no male or female. So they say Jesus obliterated all gender differences, but that's not what this passage is saying. Jesus doesn't erase all our differences. The Bible actually teaches us that God delights in people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, men who are are men and women, all joining together, worshiping in harmony. So Paul's not saying Jesus obliterated all the differences. What he's saying is that in Jesus, none of these differences determine our acceptance or our status before God. God does not favor the Jew over the Greeks. He does not favor the free over the slave. He does not favor men over women. What Jesus has obliterated is all ethnocentrism 
ostracism and all genderocracy, if I can make up a word. Jesus has wiped out all hierarchy in gender. He is restoring the world, at least in his church and through his church, he's restoring the world to God's grand design where women are equal to men in value and in dignity. This is how women are the same as men. And we celebrate that here. And so men, a word of application to you on this Mother's Day. Guys, we always have to take it because on Father's Day, I have to give you a charge. And on Mother's Day, if there's any exhortations, I have to aim it at you. So you kind of get like the double whammy. But as guys, we just got to be willing to take it, right? This is what we, this is part of our, our call, our burden. So guys, here's, here's a word for you. How highly do you value the women in your life? And of course, I'm talking about your wife, your daughters, your mother. But I'm even thinking beyond that. How, how well do you value the women of this church? Like really see what they're contributing and thank God for it. How much do you value the women in your community group? Or how about this one? How much do you value the women that you work with? for what they add. Have you thanked God for the women he has placed in your life? Have you thanked God for the gift of women? Have you told them how grateful you are for them? Today would be a good day to do that. Women, we're grateful for you. We value you. And not only that, but we need you. And that's gonna move into our next point here. Point number two, how women are different than men. How women are different than men. We said Genesis 1 tells us how God created the universe and then filled it in the space of six days, humanity on the sixth day, male and female, he made them. Then we're told on the seventh day, God rested. So that's Genesis 1. Now in Genesis 2, what happens is there's kind of a, a rewind of the tape and we zoom in to take a slower and a closer look at day six, at the creation of Adam, and especially of Eve. I don't know if you thought about this, but Genesis two is really about, in many ways, the creation of Eve. It's like a whole account on Eve's uh, creation, which is historically remarkable, because hardly any culture, none in, in, of Israel's neighbors in the ancient world had a separate account of creation for women. So here we see Genesis just elevating the status of women and focusing on the goodness of us being made male and female. So I want us to read a chunk in chapter two together. We're gonna read verses 15 through 24. So follow along here. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, this is verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But 
for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, well, I'm going to to notice two ways in which women are different from men here, at least two ways. We're going to talk about the way that they are made and the roles that they play. But before we dive into those, let me make a a careful distinction here. Again, this is a distinction Kevin DeYoung makes in his book that I think is, is really helpful. He talks about the distinction, the difference in Scripture between prescriptions and then patterns or postures. Prescriptions are things commanded in Scripture, right? And there are a few of these related to gender in the Bible, but actually there aren't very many. And there's none here in Genesis 2, really. Way more common in Scripture for men and women are patterns and postures which speak to the way that God designed them to function and flourish. And that's what we have here in Genesis 2, a kind of pattern and posture that we can embrace and that other scriptures build on. So I want to keep that in your mind here. We're not talking prescriptions as much as patterns and postures. Later we'll look at prescriptions that are built on them. All right, so number one then, the first difference we want to look at then is women are different from men in the way that they are made. Up in verse 7, a little bit above where we read, we're told that the Lord formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. So man is made from the ground. But then in what we read, verses 21 and 22, we're told that God formed Eve out of a rib from Adam's side. So woman is made from the man. Seeing these two things, it's no surprise that we find man is tasked with working and keeping the garden. He's worked with with keeping the ground. His orientation is outward to the world and taming it. But then Eve is tasked with helping Adam. She's a helper fit for him. So her orientation is toward Adam. Her orientation is to the inner world of the family. Similarly, it's worth noting in verse 15... I always thought this is a really interesting verse. It says, the Lord God took the man, so he took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. I always think that's interesting because that means apparently Adam was made somewhere outside of the garden and God picked him up, however he does that, and put him inside the garden and said, all right, man, here is a place that I want you to make productive and safe. And this even makes sense, biologically speaking, if we just think about men for a minute, because generally speaking, men are physically stronger than women. Now, I know that's not always true. I'm sure there are plenty of women who could beat me up. Don't say amen to that. (laughs) Don't say that. Amen. (laughs) But generally speaking, 
men are biologically constructed so that they are physically stronger than women. And so it makes sense that Adam's charged to use his strength to tame the outside world. But then God physically created women with this ability to nurture life. I mean, literally, they have a womb, they have breasts, and even on this like molecular level, you know, like you read about how moms have these hormones, nursing moms have these hormones, so that when their babies cry, these hormones are released, and the 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 mom just feels this like empathy towards this thing. So that when my little child is screaming for nursing, right, and I'm just like, oh my goodness, like stop it, you know, like somehow Jenny's able to be like, oh, look, she's just so pretty, you know, like she's just flooded with hormones that make her feel love and attraction to this baby that's crying its head off. I mean, because. God has engineered women to be inclined to nurture the inner life of the family. Now again, these are, these are patterns, not prescriptions. So they're not telling us a woman can't work outside the home. I think sometimes they can. But it's significant to see these patterns worked out and celebrated in scripture. So for example, Take the quintessential godly woman in Proverbs 31. She's this idealized woman. She's not real. She, I mean, if you ever read that and be like, oh my goodness, I could never measure up. You're not supposed to be able to measure up, right? She's idealized, okay? She's supposed to be the idealized wisdom or a woman of wisdom that Proverbs has been talking about. And, and she's meant to give us a picture of what it looks like to see a woman use all her physical and her mental and her entrepreneurial powers. And so what's excellent about her, we're told, is she sells wool and flax and she buys a field and she plants a vineyard and she makes coverings and clothing and she helps the poor and she teaches kindness. She's the strong woman clothed in dignity and she laughs with faith at the days to come. And yet for all that, we see her hard work and diligence are focused first and foremost on serving her husband and her home. So whatever she's busy doing, her orientation is still towards her family. Now there's no doubt, this woman, Proverbs 31 woman, breaks the mold of what we think of as a traditional woman's role. I mean, she's buying fields and planting things. I mean, she's, out, she's a worker. This ain't no June Cleaver, right? Does anyone know Leave It to Beaver anymore? I'm like, I'm, there's like seven of you. Okay, well, I'll, I'll update that one. I don't know who the traditional ideal is anymore, but, but June Cleaver is not the complementarian ideal. Ours is the Proverbs 31 woman who works hard. Maybe she's even got some work on the side selling things on eBay, you know, thingamabobs, but her family never feels they come second to all that work. She's oriented to their needs and serving them. Or here's another example for you. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes in verse 7 and 8, describing his own ministry to the Thessalonians, he says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. Then, in verses 11 and 12, a couple verses later, he switches and he says about his ministry, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 
So it's interesting here. Paul first describes his ministry like that of a nursing mom. Gentle, affectionate, sacrificial. But then second, he describes it also at other times as like a strong father. Exhortive, encouraging, commanding. And so notice what Paul's doing here. I mean, this is not just about his ministry. Notice what he's using to describe his ministry. He's identifying certain demeanors, certain postures as corresponding with one gender more than another. He's not saying this exclusively so. I mean, he's saying, hey, I, you know, I acted, I ministered like a nursing mom. So he's saying men can be gentle and affectionate. All that. But Paul is clearly saying that certain demeanors fall more naturally along gender lines. Women are more naturally affectionate and nurturing, while men are more naturally exhortive and commanding. Women tend to tend, and men tend to tame. So parents, this means we're going to approach parenting differently as husbands and wives, right? And that's all right. Our kids need both. They need us to learn to work together. (laughs) So men, draw out your wives. Dad, you know one of the best gifts you could probably give to your wife on Mother's Day or for Mother's Day is to sit down and say, honey, let's just, let's talk through the kids. I'd like to hear what you're thinking about with them right now. I'd like to hear what you're afraid of, what you're excited about, what you're feeling about with them. We need that nurturing sense that moms have to draw that out of them and let that inform then how we parent them as fathers. You see, all this is built, all this that Paul is saying and we can draw from it, all this is built on the way men and women were made. Paul's looking back to Genesis and saying there's a certain way we were made as male and female, that certain dispositions that come with it, and that has implications for our life. Men are oriented outwards towards taming the world, while women are oriented inwards towards tending the family. And and the Bible would call us to embrace those differences with faith. Now, a second way women are different from men, the second way we want to look at it, is in the role that they play. In the role that they play. So, a couple of roles, pattern roles, are, are laid out for us here in this passage. One is that of men leading right? We see this in a number of ways. Uh, I'll give you a quick list. First, Adam was made first. Second, to the man alone, to Adam alone, God gave the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So man is responsible for establishing God's commands on earth and maintaining holiness in the garden. Third, Adam was charged with protecting everything in the garden, including Eve. Fourth, he was responsible for naming everything in the garden, again, including Eve, who he names twice. Once he names woman, because she came from man, and second time, in chapter three, he names her Eve, which means living, because from her comes all living things. Uh, Where was I, four, five, five. Fifth, Eve is given to Adam as his helper, fit for him. And then sixth, and finally, it fell to the man to leave his father and mother and take responsibility for a new wife. 
It's actually a surprising uh, ending to chapter two, if you think about it. After all that we talk about with men being the heads or the leaders, you kind of would expect like he's gonna establish a home and his wife will come and join him in his home as the head. But actually the picture we're given is no, a man goes, he leaves the stability of uh, the safety of, of his, the kind of the nest he grew up in, his mother and father. He sorts out on his own in search of a wife that he takes responsibility for and he clings to her She's kind of interesting because it's, it's like she's got this, I mean, she's oriented to the family, so he's grabbing onto her to make this new family, this new nucleus that she's gonna be focused on while he's out working. It's just really a beautiful picture when you think about it. But all that to say, it's clear here, men are called to lead. That's the pattern that's set for us. And the point to draw from this is that the New Testament prescriptions about men leading in the home and in the church, they're all built on this passage. They're drawn from here. So take 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13. Paul teaches, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, what we can see here in the reasoning Paul gives is In verse 13, we see this is not a culturally dependent rule. This is not just something from ancient cultural traditions that Paul was still trying to hold on to kind of arbitrarily and thought, well, I guess this is how we do it. I don't know. No, he's saying this is an outworking of God's good design. Adam was formed first. He's to take responsibility for leading. He needs to bear that responsibility. It doesn't mean that women are better, men are better than women. It doesn't mean that, that women are not equal to men. They are, but God has called men to take responsibility for the well-being of women. That's our job. We're called to lead. Eve, on the other hand, was made from Adam's side so that she could support him. That's the point of verse 18. So look with me at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper, fit for him. In the rhythm of Genesis 1 and 2, this is actually a kind of a startling verse because after all the talk in chapter 1 of good, you know, God made this and it's good and God made this and it's good and God made this and it's good and God made this and it's good. But here we get into verse 18 and we find something that if it's left undone would not be good. It would be terrible. This would be a huge mess. Man needs a helper. Can I get a amen? amen? There we go. Helper is not a demeaning term in the Bible. In fact, it's a term ascribed to God regularly. In places like Psalm 145, God is our helper. The word helper is a word that means one who supplies strength where lacking. One who supplies strength where lacking. So just as God comes along and strengthens the weak, so a wife comes along and supplies strength where her husband is lacking. Now, I can give you a number of examples of this. Uh, For instance, this is just from my own life and marriage. Now, I like having people over. I like people. I like you. You're nice people. I'd like to have you over sometime. But my natural inclination is not to have people over. My natural inclination is to read a book. 
by myself. Just me and the book. That's what I like. And I have to be with people. Well, that's okay, because I got six kids and a wife. So I've got a lot of people to be with right there. And I'm very happy with that. But my wife has two things I don't. She loves being with people. She's quiet, but she loves hosting people in our home and being with people. She loves that, that's her inclination. And then second, she has a very strong conviction that the way we show love and build friendships is by opening our home, by being hospitable. And so my wife supplies what I lack. She regularly is asking me, who are we gonna have over? Who should we have over? Who do you wanna have over? We don't have him on the calendar. Who do you wanna have over? And it supplies what I lack. Let me give you a second example. For years now, I've done the finances for our family. And I have hated almost every moment of it. I hate managing the finances. I hate balancing things. I hate tracking things. I hate saving money. The only thing I'm good at with the finances is spending our money. And that's, that's what I enjoy doing, is buying things. I think that's fun. That I can do with money. Give me money and I can do that. Jenny, on the other hand, is very frugal. Like, she loves to find the discounts and the, no one uses coupons anymore, but the coupon codes and all, right? And so she'll save like half a percent on something and she's so excited about that and it's great. Isn't that great for us? And I'm like... I, that just does nothing for me, really. Like, I know on some level that's great, but on my level, I'm more like, what'd you buy? Will I like it? Like, that's where I get excited, right? But Jenny's not. She likes to save, and she's frugal, and she likes to track and balance things, and she likes, so, so we're in the process of transitioning so that she can take our finances for us. Because I'm weak in it, and she's strong. So why would I not have her do that? It just makes sense. And I could keep piling on example after example, but I think you get my point. And this is what we see all through scripture. We are shown again and again how men need the help of women. Rahab hid the two spies. Deborah strengthened the resolve of Barak. Ruth convinced Boaz to redeem her. Abigail dealt kindly with David while begging forgiveness for her husband. Esther risked her life to alert her husband to the true threat to his kingdom. And I just love the example throughout scripture of women leading the congregation at times in Israel in certain ways. Particularly, you have examples like Miriam in Exodus leading the people in celebrating. It says that she grabbed the tambourine and started to sing and rejoice and all the women joined her and led the congregation in celebration. Or in Jeremiah 7, you have the women leading in mourning. So these professional lamenters, women who went before the congregation to lead them in crying out to God for mercy and for sadness. And I think that's part of because women have this inclination. I mean, women feel things, right? Right, ladies? You feel things and that's not a bad thing. God made you to feel things because you are a nurturer. And so you feel when life is hurt. And you feel when life is brought. 
And us guys would do a lot of good, guys are emotionally dull, most of us, right? There are exceptions, like one or two in the world, but most of us are pretty emotionally dull. And guys, we would be served a lot by just sitting down with our wives and talking through things that we should rejoice over or things we should be sad over because they feel and we're meant to feel. God made us emotional beings and we can be helped by our wives supplying what we lack. There are so many ways women can help men where we are weak. Yes, we have roles to fulfill. Yes, guys are called to lead in the home and the church. Yes, we must be faithful to do that. But ladies, you can do things us guys can't do. And I wanna say loud and clear from the pulpit here, we need you. We need you, we need your ministry in this church. We need you to do the things us guys are not gifted at and not inclined towards. We need your insight, we need your counsel, we need your prayers, we need your active participation, we need you discipling here, we need Titus two women, older women discipling younger women. Ladies, we need you in this church. And us men in our families, we need you. So we thank God for you, ladies. It's good to honor mothers. It's good to honor women. You are needed gifts that God has given us because he saw it was not fit for us men to be alone, but that we needed a helper fit for us. So in conclusion, let me wrap all this up. Of all the things that are good in the garden, God spends the most time showing us the goodness of his making us male and female. This is God's good design. Men and women complementing each other, being what the other isn't, and so completing each other. That's the pattern we find here in Genesis, and it's the substructure to all our complementarian convictions. And a part of what I want you to see is that New Testament rules and exhortations regarding men and women are not arbitrary conclusions, they're not culturally dependent, but have everything to do with the sort of people God made us to be. Male and female, he created us and said, It is very good. Let's pray.